In Acts chapter 9, when we read about Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, after he was struck blind, God sent Ananias to pray for Paul to receive his sight. And then God also said to Ananias at that time, this man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. As I've said before, what a great way to start the Christian life, right? God says, come to me, you're my child, I love you very much, you have been persecuting me, but now I'm redeeming you, and guess what? I want to show you how much you will suffer for my name, right? This week, and for the next two Sundays, we're going to go through a three-part mini-series on speaking truth to power. And each Sunday, we'll look at how Paul spoke, proclaimed the word of God to the Roman rulers and kings, the power brokers, how he proclaimed the name of Jesus to them and how they responded or reacted to that proclamation. So in part one today, we'll look at Paul before Governor Felix. Part two next week is Paul before Governor Festus, and then part three is Paul before the King Agrippa, King Agrippa, right? So these are the three things that we're going to, three weeks that we're going to look at this. So this week we're in Acts chapter 24, speaking truth to power, part one, where Paul is before Felix. So turn to those scriptures, let's read it through. I'll make a couple of comments as we're going through. But chapter 24, verse one says, five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Now you read that and you listen to what Tertullus says and you think, wow, Felix must have been a great governor. It was nothing of the kind. Felix became procurator of Judea in AD 52, which means that he had been governor for about five years, five or six years or so, when Paul was brought to him. And during that period, there were so many uprisings and all sorts of insurgencies that, you know, during Felix's term of office, that he ruthlessly put down, that he quenched all those things, you know, I mean, he just attacked the people, went after it, he was doing all of these things. So, in spite of what Tertullus says, it wasn't that Felix was kind and generous and you know, that they had come there with great gratitude. He's flattering, he's just flattering Felix. And in spite of all his flattery, it was in fact a Jewish delegation that went to Rome and accused Felix of wrongdoing that finally led to Felix being removed as governor of Judea. So here we have Tertullus making all these statements. Felix himself had married three 
women of royal birth successively, one after the other, you know, married, then out with her, next one. And so his current wife was his third wife, Drusilla, the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. And remember when we studied the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 19, and then we were looking at different scriptures also, but primarily we started this to understand this when we looked in Luke 19, that Herod is a title, it's not a name. And so Herod, there are multiple Herods referenced in the Bible, beginning with Herod the Great at the time of Jesus' birth. Then we read about Herod Archelaus. You read about Herod Antipas, who reigned when both John the Baptist and Jesus were killed. That was the Herod that was reigning at that time. Then we have Herod Philip. We have Herod Agrippa I, who was the grandson of Herod the Great, and who we read about in Acts 12, that when he took the glory of God for himself, an angel struck him down and he died, right? We read about that in Acts 12. And now, in Acts 25, so next week, we'll read about Herod Agrippa II, that's the son of Herod Agrippa I. Drusilla, who is Felix's wife, is a sister of Herod Agrippa II, right? So there's all these connections, all these things that are going on. But this is what's going on here in this context, and this is what's happening with Felix and Drusilla. Now, let's continue to read in Acts 24 as Tertullus lays out the charges against Paul. Verse 5, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among all the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that, that it is written in the prophets. Um, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or, or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. 
He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and to permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. This phrase, speaking truth to power, was a phrase that was used by the Quakers to advocate nonviolent methods and pacifist strategies to achieve social justice and political change. It was the same concept that was used by Mandela in South Africa to oppose apartheid and by Gandhi in India to oppose British rule and push for independence. In fact, the nonviolent protest tactic that Gandhi used was called Satyagraha, literally, truth force, speaking truth to power. The idea is that a person or a group who doesn't have power would courageously confront the rulers and authorities in power, call out the injustices on their watch, and demand change. In Paul's case, he spoke the truth in love to both the Jews and the Gentiles, and now he's speaking the truth in love to Governor Felix. He refutes the false charges of the Jewish leaders, confronts the Roman rulers about their own beliefs, and he pushes for change. And so here are the lessons for us to learn from both Paul and Felix. Paul shows us how an ambassador of Christ presents the gospel message to those in power, to those who are in some position where they have power over you. And when he speaks, we'll see how he lays out what he does. Uh, last week, in light of uh, the fact that we are citizens, last week as we were considering the fact that we have rights and responsibilities as citizens of the kingdom of God, that we have this earthly citizenship, but more importantly, we have a citizenship in heaven. When we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we saw that one of the responsibilities of that citizenship is to be an ambassador of Christ, to represent the king of kings and the kingdom of God in the earth. We have to represent that as ambassadors of Christ. And we've seen in previous chapters that Paul knew very well how to communicate a relevant message to every people group that he interacted with. Whoever he was interacting with, he presented a relevant message. He may not always have been received by those group of people, and his message may not have been accepted by them, but he never compromised. He always shared that uncompromised message of the kingdom of God with everyone. Now, 
as he's speaking before Felix, when Paul refutes all the charges that are laid against him, I mean, he systematically goes through it. He says, you can, you can verify this. 12 days ago, I was there. This is what happened. This is what happened. He goes through and refutes each one of the charges that are against him. And it's very clear that Felix realized that there's no merit to what Tertullus and the Jewish leaders have brought as charges. Right? He's listening to it. He listens to what Paul says. And he knows he can easily verify these, these points. He can talk to Lysias and everybody else and so on. And so he knows that there's no merit to these charges. But since he did not want to do anything that would further jeopardize his position with the Jewish leaders, Felix is stalling for time. He stalls for time by saying he'll decide the case after the commander, Lysias, is coming, after he arrives. Right? He says, okay, we'll wait till Lysias comes, and then we'll decide. And then several days later, Possibly when Lysias was also there. The Bible doesn't say that explicitly, but it's very possible that Lysias has arrived and now Felix and Drusilla are, are listening to Paul. So several days later, Felix listened to Paul as Paul spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. But notice verse 25. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. Why? Think about it. Paul has no army. I mean, he was protected by the Roman army to be brought to Caesarea, but he has no army. He has no power of any kind. He has nobody that he can say, hey, you know, this, he has no influence with Caesar or anyone else to be able to do something against Felix. Why was Felix afraid? I want you to go over to John chapter 16, verses 7 through 15. John chapter 16, verses 7 through 15. In this passage, Jesus is speaking to the disciples right before he goes to the cross. So he says, Very truly, I tell you, it is good for you that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove to the world, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. By the way, you know, last week when we were considering that one of our citizenship rights, and uh, Michael was referring to it also when, during the time of worship, that we are able to come to the throne of grace, that we have God himself, you know, uh, advocating for us, but when we considered one of our citizenship rights, it, it is to receive fair justice from God and for Jesus himself to be our 
advocate. Right? As we read in 1 John, Jesus himself is our advocate. Notice that here, Jesus, in, in John 16, Jesus is referring to the Holy Spirit as our advocate. And then Jesus goes on to say that all the Father has is his. And in other portions of scripture we know where Jesus says, I am in the Father and the Father in me, we are one. We are one. Right? And then here, we are reading these, how Jesus is making these references, and it's very clear that this passage makes a very strong case for the Trinity, for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all three being one. Very clear to see that when people argue and say, oh no, this, that, and you'll hear all these arguments. Keep in mind scriptures like this. Jesus and the word of God never explicitly uses the word Trinity, but the concept is so clearly evident in so many scriptures that we just sort of say, oh, clearly. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, right? Okay, now, what is Jesus saying in John chapter 16? He says the Holy Spirit will do something very specific. The Holy Spirit will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. So it is good for you that I'm going away so that the Holy Spirit may come, the Holy Spirit may be poured out, and the Holy Spirit will do this work across the world. What Jesus did in a local area, there in, that, in, in the Middle East, in a localized way, right? he says, it is good for you that now when the Holy Spirit comes, this work is going to happen all over the world. And what will the Holy Spirit do? Exactly what is manifest in Felix. When Paul speaks, by the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is convicting Felix. Felix is not able to resist the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul is not able to change Felix in any way. Paul has no power to change Felix. He's simply delivering these words. But God can change Felix. And Felix, who is already familiar with the way, it doesn't say that he started to listen to Paul or he agreed to even you know, consider Paul's case and that he was afraid. No. He's familiar with Jesus and the way and these, the, the Nazarenes and the, the sect that the, that the Jewish people are pointing to. The Bible says Felix is very familiar with it. But now when Paul starts to speak, Felix is convicted. The true and living God is revealing himself to Felix. And Felix realizes that a future judgment is very real. And he starts to get afraid. He realizes that he has no power to save himself even though he's got all this power as the governor. He realizes that he has to respond. And his act of self-control would have been to say, I believe, I believe, and I need this righteousness of God so that I may be saved from that final judgment. But he did not. He did not respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He starts to feel this fear. He starts to feel the conviction, but he does not respond. In fact, 
he cuts Paul short and he says, ah, no, enough, enough. Which brings us to the second point. Felix shows us how many powerful people who actually realize the truth respond to the gospel message. In spite of being afraid of what was to come, Felix was more afraid of losing what he had. He wanted to hold on to his power and his position. He was greedy for more. He was seeking a bribe from Paul. I'm not sure where, where he thought Paul would get this money, but he wanted a bribe from Paul. And you can imagine with the kind of power and wealth that he had, this bribe is not you know, a small amount that he was seeking. He wanted something substantial. He wanted the support of the Jews. But his mind was set on earthly things. He made a choice not to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, even though the Holy Spirit is actively speaking, prompting, convicting. Many times when we speak to people in power or who are wealthy or who have the resources like Felix, who these people who may think that they have everything that they need, they realize that we're speaking truth, that we're telling them about something that is true. They are convicted by the Holy Spirit. But their fear of being judged by God is overcome by faith. Not faith in God, but faith in themselves. They think that their wealth, their power, their position will preserve them. And so they're willing to forego what is the promise of God and the warning of God for the sake of holding on to what they think they can control. And that becomes their reality. And that becomes the way that they respond to us. So that means we have one question that we have to ask. So what should we do? If people do this when we try to share the gospel message. Now again, we're speaking about different kinds of people and different categories and things and over these next three weeks, even as we speak you know, truth to power and so on, you'll see that there are different reactions, different conditions of the person who is the hearer. But what do we do in the case of a person who really knows that you're speaking truth, who is being convicted of the truth, who is even afraid they're, they're being moved inside, right? But they refuse to respond. Or, or they're hesitant to respond. What do we do? Well, we respond and we apply this word that we are hearing here, this truth that is in this chapter, Acts, uh, ch chapter 24 of Acts, by speaking the whole truth in love to the rich and powerful. We say, okay. When we proclaim the truth about Jesus to those in power, our goal is not to convince them of the truth of God through logic and argumentation. You can't argue your way into the lives, into the hearts of these folks. They're not going to listen to that. 
our hearers are most likely already convicted of the truth. They're not looking for that logic per se. And our goal when we talk to them about Jesus is not to present material benefits and blessings. Oh, come to Jesus and you'll be, you'll be blessed in the world. First of all, that's not the message that we should be sharing. And secondly, they have no interest in that. They've got all that they need. They've got all the things that they feel that, you know, and Christianity and these things that you're holding on to, those are a crutch for you, but I don't need a crutch. I'm doing well. And so they're not, they're not interested in us saying to them, let me tell you about the way that God can bless you. No, I mean, they're not, they're not particularly interested in that. And when we speak to them, our goal can't be to meet their felt needs. Because their felt needs are for more wealth, more power, greed of the things of the earth. And you can't meet that felt need. You can't go to a person and say to them, well, I'll help you to achieve those things, and as I help you to achieve those things, let me tell you about Jesus. They're not interested in that either. So what can we do? What do we do? Well, our goal has to be that we speak in such a way that the Holy Spirit is manifest and that the Holy Spirit is speaking and that the Holy Spirit is convicting. Because if we're relying on our elocution, if we're relying on our knowledge, if we're relying on our power of persuasion, it's not going to work. We have to, as Jesus has said, rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. The Holy Spirit convicts. So what do we need to do? Get out of the way and allow the Holy Spirit to minister. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying that you stand mute in front of the person that you're speaking to. You speak. The words are coming out of your mouth. right? You are allowing the Holy Spirit to speak through you. And, and, and I can tell you, I, I know that each of you can speak about this or say this. There have been times when you are speaking with somebody and they ask a question or they're doing something and you give a response. And as you're giving the response, you're thinking, oh, that's not from me. Oh, thank you, God, for giving me those words to say to this person at this particular time. And I know that that wisdom that just came out of my mouth was not because I am so wise. That was clearly the Holy Spirit just speaking through me. Right? You know that. You have experienced that kind of thing. And I'm saying to you that we need to be more and more in tune with the Holy Spirit, more and more in step with the Holy Spirit, that that would be the way that we speak all the time. That we would say, oh God, let your Holy Spirit speak through me. Because when the Holy Spirit speaks, he'll bring conviction. When the Holy Spirit speaks, he will move with power in the heart of the hearer. When the Holy Spirit speaks, there will be the conviction about sin. You don't have to say to the person, what a sinner you are. You simply say, let me tell you what the Lord wants you to hear. And, and, and for each person, that's going to be different. I'm not at all prescribing a method to you. I'm not at all giving you a script and saying, you know, we'll print this out, we'll have handouts. When you go out the door today, make sure that you read this out to every person that you meet. No, we're saying you need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit because the needs of that person, the needs of that hearer are going to be unique for that person. 
Jesus spoke to the woman at the well in one way. He spoke to, spoke to the rich young ruler in another way. He spoke to the woman who touched him and had the issue of blood and was healed. He spoke to her in a different way. I mean, he spoke to the adulterous woman who was caught and was brought to him and said, oh, we've got to stone her to death. And he spoke to her in a different way. And to each one of them, and to the Pharisees and the others, to each one of them, he spoke the appropriate word that was necessary for them. And for each one of them, when that appropriate word was spoken, there was conviction that came. So we don't have a method, we don't have a, a script, we don't say, oh, this is what I will say to this person. This person is a powerful person, this person is a rich person. Okay, here's my script. You know, power script, rich script, you know, powerless script. No, no. We say, the Holy Spirit, you fill me. You anoint me. Let me be dependent on you. Let me be completely immersed in you. Let me be baptized in the Holy Spirit in such a way that when I open my mouth, what comes out of my mouth is not what I think. It's not what I want. It's not what I perceive. Oh, this person, oh, I don't think they're going to listen to me. But anyway, I'll give it a shot. Right? I mean, that, that's us going, okay. Right? That's us trying to persuade. Well, Jesus came for your sins, you know, that. I know you don't want to hear this, but, you know, that's us. But instead, if we will allow the Holy Spirit to speak, and even as we've looked at the gifts of the Spirit and the fact that the spontaneous voice of God can come to us, and we speak with a word of knowledge, we speak with word of wisdom, we speak prophetically, we speak by the power of the Holy Spirit, the inquirer's heart is revealed. Their need is, is, is manifest. And the Holy Spirit speaks directly to them. And now, that starts to move. That starts to stir. So that means, as we open our mouths and we allow the Holy Spirit who tames our tongues to speak through us, we will speak only the word of God because it has the necessary power to transform the hearer. The word of God is living and active. It is powerful. It has the necessary power. We don't have to add to it. We don't have to come up with our own thing. We don't have to do it. We just simply declare that powerful word of God. But let me also say that there's one more way in which we should speak. We should also speak with our actions by how we live our lives. Do we live contented, joyful, peaceful, calm, boring lives? Do we love others as Christ loves them? Are we generous with what we are stewards of, what the Lord has entrusted into our hand as stewards? Do we live with eager expectation, with a hope for Jesus' return? If we're living like that, and the person that we're speaking to is hearing from the Holy Spirit and observing our lives. Now that starts to put into their heart and their mind that even though they think they have everything that they need, there's something in what you are saying, there's something in your life, there's something in you that they don't seem to have. These expectations, these hopes, these expressions of the Holy Spirit, peace, joy, love, kindness, goodness, self-control, these ways to be patient. Oh, 
when they see that, they want, there was a desire that comes up within them that says, I want that. I want that. All my money and all my power doesn't seem to get me this. I want that. I mentioned Gandhi earlier as a person who spoke truth to power. As he led the freedom movement in India, he became a person of great influence himself, and the nation listened when he spoke. And there were a number of people, number of people over quite a bit of time, who shared the gospel message with him, and who was sharing the truth in love to him as he was now in a position of power and influence himself. Not, not militarily and so on, but he was in a power position himself. And the gospel message was shared with him. And Gandhi is reputed to have said, I like your Christ, but not your Christianity. Right? It's almost, it's very unlikely that he actually said those words, but he said something very close to that. And it's very clear that he had that sentiment. He understood what was being presented about the Bible and about Jesus. And it was very clear that he understood who Jesus was or what the claim about Jesus is. And it's very clear that he had this sentiment, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christianity. Meaning in the name of Christ, what the British Empire was doing. In the name of Christ, what people around him were doing. In the name of Christ, those so-called Christians, the way that they were living. And he said, I don't like this. I don't see how this could be true or how this can be consistent, or how this can be what we go after. And you know, there are many people all over the world who are convicted that Jesus is true, and that he spoke the truth. But they look at the lives of those who claim to be disciples of Jesus, and they find such a stark contrast. And so they do not make that statement. They won't take that step. Conviction comes, all of that, but they won't do it. But here's the thing, for us, we cannot be intimidated by riches or power. If God's giving you an opportunity, not everybody in the, in the early church stood before kings. In fact, not many accounts of almost anybody other than Paul that's standing before the kings. So it's not that you, know, you will always have opportunity to be before those in power, those in high positions, those, the, the, you know, the wealthy. But when you do, when you do, what will you say? Will you be intimidated? Oh, I don't know how to speak to this person. Oh. You know? Would you say, oh, they, I mean, this person, oh, you know, they're the president, they're this, they're that, they're the CEO. I don't know. No. We don't need to be intimidated by any of that. You can't assume that a rich or powerful person will not listen to you because they have no material needs. You can't say, oh, they, have, they won't listen. Don't, don't, don't make that assumption. And we cannot think that they will never change. We see these instances, we see what happened with Felix, we know that there's a possibility, but we can't say, oh, they'll never change, I don't need to speak to them, right? We have a responsibility to keep sharing the gospel message. We want to keep giving this gospel message, regardless of whether some in the body of Christ have given Christianity a bad name, it doesn't matter. We continue to speak this message of the gospel this good news about Jesus, what he has done and what he means for us. We continue to declare it and we continue to speak in our trust and dependence on the Holy Spirit. We speak to those in power 
through the power of the Holy Spirit. Greater is he than, that is in us than he that is in the world. We're not trying to overcome somebody by, you know, sort of getting into a conflict. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We simply speak the word that is coming from the greater. When we are doing that, when we speak in that way, when we are allowing the Holy Spirit to use us in that way, will there be a change? I believe there will. I believe that the world around us will start to pay attention when we speak, both verbally and non-verbally, with a consistent message of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your word is so powerful for us and we thank you for this example of what we see in the life of Paul. We thank you, Lord, that he didn't hesitate to speak to governors or kings, anyone at all. He was not afraid of what they would do to him. He wasn't concerned that they would be convicted and be afraid and take it out on him. He spoke the word of God without compromise. Oh, Lord God, I thank you, Lord, that the word records for us how Felix was convicted, how Felix was afraid, how Felix realized that he's hearing truth. Lord, as we learn this, as we see this, as we understand it, I pray, Father, that you would equip us, that you would cause us to grow in our desire for the Holy Spirit, to be, Lord, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, so that when we have opportunity, as you give us opportunity, as you lead us to speak to others, people who are in power, people who are, Lord, seems, who seem like they don't need anything, when we have an opportunity to speak to those folks, help us, Lord, to speak and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to them through us. Thank you, Lord, that when that happens, you, Holy Spirit, oh, you, Almighty God, will do your work. We have to just rest. We don't have to strive. We don't have to make something happen. We just allow the Holy Spirit to convict, to convict of sin, to convict of righteousness, to convict of judgment, to reach the person in the specific way that they need to be reached. Help us, Lord, to trust you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.